Welcome to the Improve the News Show for Thursday, April 6th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Democrat-backed Janet Protasewicz wins Wisconsin's Supreme Court race. Gaza militants fire rockets into Israel following a police raid on Al-Aqsa Mosque. Zelensky travels to Poland amid a farmer's dispute on Ukrainian grain. Scottish ex-Prime Minister Nikhal Sturgeon's husband is arrested. The U.S. flies nuclear-capable bombers to the Korean Peninsula. The U.K.'s so-called perfect war in Iraq and Syria comes under renewed scrutiny. Twitter is accused of censoring critics of Indian Prime Minister Modi. Johnson & Johnson agrees to an $8.9 billion talc settlement. The Vatican accuses China of breaking a bilateral pact on appointing bishops. And an Australian mayor prepares a defamation lawsuit over ChatGPT content. In our top story, Democrat-backed Protasewicz wins Wisconsin Supreme Court race. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, Axios, NPR Online News, and Guardian. Democrat-backed Milwaukee County Circuit Judge Janet Protasewicz Tuesday defeated Republican-supported former Justice Dan Kelly for a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, shifting the majority control of the court to liberals for the first time in 15 years. With 75% of the ballots counted, Protasewicz had 55.4% of the vote to Kelly's 44.6%, a lead of approximately 160,000 votes. It was the most expensive judicial election in U.S. history, with more than $42.3 million spent as of Monday, because Wisconsin has a Democratic governor and a Republican-led state legislature, activists on both sides see the court as a decisive force in stalemates. A major issue in the run-up to the election was an upcoming decision on the constitutionality of the state's 1849 ban that only allows abortion when it's necessary to save the life of the mother. Protasewicz has publicly supported abortion rights, while Kelly has previously criticized abortion. Protasewicz, whose 10-year term begins August 1st, could also be a crucial vote in a lawsuit that could overturn Republican-drawn legislative maps in the state. Election integrity was also at play, as Kelly was an advisor to a group of Republicans who allegedly falsely claimed to be electors for former President Donald Trump in the 2020 presidential election. The state Supreme Court narrowly rejected the plan. Thank you, Eric. Here on the show, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. Eric just laid out the facts, and now we've got a Democratic spin starting off with a narrative provided by Mother Jones. The election has saved Wisconsin from the clutches of election-denying Republicans who pose a risk to democracy. Now an unpopular abortion ban and a rigged voting map can be rescinded and other progressive goals can be accomplished for the betterment of the state and the country. And we counter that with a Republican narrative coming from New York Post. This wasn't a victory for democracy. It was a win for a judge who was backed heavily by radical left billionaire George Soros and other out-of-state financiers. They seemingly won't rest until they've spread their dangerous, soft-on-crime agenda across the country. Why do the Republicans always go George Soros? I didn't vote for him. Did you vote for him? No, I voted for Boy George. 
Hey, I'll tumble for you. Did you get that there? I'll tumble for you. Oh, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. You're such a chameleon. (laughs) Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Gaza militants fire rockets into Israel after Al-Aqsa Mosque raid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, All Arabia English, CNN, and Guardian. Following a raid by Israel police on Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque on Wednesday, Palestinian militants in the Gaza Strip fired at least nine rockets into Israel. In response, Israel launched airstrikes at what it says were weapon production sites controlled by Hamas. Israeli police said they had arrested 350 people after what they called agitators with fireworks, sticks, and stones barricaded themselves inside the mosque, with Palestinians at the scene saying the stun grenades and rubber bullets were used to clear out the group. Fifty people were reportedly injured. It is not immediately clear how the incident began with conflicting reports from Palestinian and Israeli sources. Israeli police said that they were forced to enter the mosque because Palestinians had locked themselves inside. However, Palestinian sources described the confrontation as an unjustified attack on worshippers. The incident drew condemnation from across the Arab and Muslim world, with Jordan condemning the actions of the Israeli police in the strongest terms and calling on Israel to immediately remove its forces from the mosque. With the Muslim holy month of Ramadan and Jewish Passover celebrations overlapping this week, tensions are particularly high, as Al-Aqsa, which is considered one of the holiest sites in Islam, is also considered a major holy site in Judaism, often referred to as the Temple Mount. The situation in the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel continues to deteriorate and violence has worsened in the last year due to an increase in Israeli raids in the West Bank following a spree of Palestinian attacks in Israel. In May 2021, an 11-day conflict broke out between Israel and Hamas, sparked by confrontations at Al-Aqsa. Thank you, Adam. Our first spin is a pro-Palestine narrative coming from Middle East Eye. Every year, Israeli forces brutalize Palestinian worshippers, while the world and international media either turn a blind eye or pretend as if this is a conflict with two sides. Without cause, Israeli police assaulted worshippers, leading to a dangerous escalation. The occupation's cruelty has no bounds, even during the holy month of Ramadan. Emboldened by international passivity, after killing more Palestinians last year than in any other calendar year since the Second Intifada, the occupation is becoming even more brutal. And Times of Israel has provided a pro-Israel narrative. Though the Palestinians and their enablers will cry foul when Israeli police try to maintain order, the reality is that Wednesday's confrontation was a result of Palestinian agitators turning a holy site into a war zone. Even though the Temple Mount is the holiest place in Judaism, Israel maintains the status quo as it has no interest in provoking the situation in the West Bank or Gaza. While the media focuses on Jerusalem, terrorists in Gaza fired the rockets at Israeli civilians, which is the real crime. And we have our first nerd narrative of today's podcast. There's a 50% chance that there will be an Israel-Hezbollah war by 2030, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. 
Turning our attention to the latest in Ukraine as Zelensky travels to Poland amid farmers' dispute on Ukrainian grain. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Yahoo News, Zawya, Saltwire, DW, and Moscow Times. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky traveled to Poland on Wednesday amid a dispute among local farmers who say the lifting of tariffs on Ukrainian grain has flooded the local market, driving down the prices of Polish equivalents. Neighboring Poland has typically been one of Ukraine's staunchest backers since the war began. However, Polish farmers threatened to spoil Zelensky's visit as anger over the issue mounted. As Zelensky made his way to Warsaw, Polish Agriculture Minister Henryk Kowalczyk resigned from his post, citing the European Commission's decision to extend duty-free imports of Ukrainian grain until June 2024. Quote, as it is clear that this demand will not be met by the European Commission at this point, I decided to resign from the post of agriculture minister, he said. Ahead of Zelensky's meeting with Polish President Andrzej Duda and Prime Minister Matusz Morawiecki, the latter confirmed the trio would discuss the grain issue. Quote, during talks with President Zelensky, Morawiecki said, we will certainly discuss Ukrainian grain and various agricultural products because we want any trade with Ukraine not to destabilize our market. Meanwhile, after meeting with Zelensky and traveling to the Zaporizhia Nuclear Power Plant, or ZNPP, last week, head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, Rafael Grossi traveled to Russia on Wednesday, where he'll continue negotiations concerning the creation of a safe zone around the ZNPP. Russian officials said a Ukrainian drone crashed near the ZNPP before the talks with Grossi were set to get underway. In the meantime, French President Emmanuel Macron and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen arrived in Beijing for three days of talks with Chinese officials, including President Xi Jinping. The agenda will focus on the Ukraine war, as well as attempts to repair French trade relations with Beijing. Elsewhere, after Finland joined the NATO military alliance on Tuesday, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov described the move as an escalation and an encroachment on Russia's security and national interests. He stated, Naturally, this forces us to take countermeasures to ensure our own tactical and strategic security. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start off with a pro-establishment narrative provided by AP News. Poland has been one of Ukraine's biggest backers since Russia invaded, and Zelensky's trip is a show of gratitude to the country particularly as it has taken in the lion's share of Ukrainian refugees. More than one and a half million Ukrainians have registered with the Polish government since the war began, and this relationship between close-knit allies should not be overshadowed by a minor trade dispute. The Guardian gives us an establishment critical narrative for this story. Despite Poland's support for Ukraine, Polish farmers are right to be angry over Zelensky's visit. The policies allowing Ukrainian grain to be sent to Poland without tariffs have left local farmers to bear the brunt of the financial burden and are making their livelihoods unsustainable. And there's a nerd narrative that says there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will join the European Union before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Scotland's ex-Prime Minister Sturgeon's husband is arrested. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Guardian, LA Times, Euronews, and the South China Morning Post. On Wednesday, Peter Murrell, the 58-year-old husband of former Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, was taken into custody 
in connection with an investigation into the funding and finances of the pro-independent Scottish National Party, or the SNP. According to reports, detectives are questioning the former chief executive officer of the SNP about the £600,000 or the 794,000 U.S. dollars raised by Scottish independence campaigners in 2017 that allegedly disappeared from the party's accounts. The police are also investigating Mural for failing to declare a personal loan of more than 100,000 pounds, or 125,000 U.S. dollars, he gave to the party after the last election. Police Scotland said officers were carrying out searches at several addresses linked to the investigation including Sturgeon and Mural's home in Glasgow and the SNP's headquarters close to the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh. Deputy Scottish Labour Party leader Jackie Bailey said Mural's arrest was deeply concerning and called on Sturgeon and her successor, Humza Youssef, to urgently state what they knew and when. Mural resigned last month after serving as the SNP's top executive for more than two decades over misleading the public about the party's declining membership and running a leadership contest to find a successor to Sturgeon. Sturgeon, who led Scotland since 2014, when Scots voted to remain part of the UK, abruptly resigned as the Prime Minister in February, saying she had become too divisive to lead the nation to independence. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, and it's coming from The Guardian. The SNP is deeply riven by ideological and political disputes. Its membership has fallen by 30% over the last year. Peter Murrell's arrest is likely to have a far-reaching effect on the party. These may include denting Sturgeon's successor's attempts to rebuild the party's support base, rebuilding finances, and facing stiff competition from Labour, who are now winning support from pro-UK and pro-independence voters. And there's a narrative B provided by Think Scotland. The SNP's finances were the reason for Sturgeon's resignation, not the physical and mental impact of dealing with COVID. It is clear Mural's impending arrest would have been awkward for her if she were still in office. Whether or not she was involved in the mishandling of funds is yet to be known. But the power couple has much to explain. And we have a nerd narrative for this story as well. It says there's a 15% chance that Scotland will leave the United Kingdom before 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. The United States flies nuclear-capable bombers as tensions soar with North Korea. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, ABC News, Associated Press, Reuters, and Korea Herald. The U.S. on Wednesday flew nuclear-capable B-52 bombers to the Korean Peninsula for the first time in a month as it tried to send a message to North Korea amid mounting concerns about Pyongyang's nuclear capabilities. South Korea's defense ministry stated that the U.S. long-range bombers took part in joint aerial drills with the U.S. and South Korean fighter jets intended to show the strong resolve of their alliance as well as its readiness. The U.S. also deployed the nuclear-powered USS Nimitz aircraft carrier for joint naval training with South Korea last week and U.S.-South Korea-Japan anti-submarine drills this week. This comes as Seoul and Washington have been conducting several war games since last month, including their first large-scale amphibious landing drills in five years. Pyongyang characterizes the drills as a rehearsal for war. The North has ramped up its military activity in recent weeks, disclosing smaller nuclear warheads and pledging to produce more weapons-grade nuclear material, 
while testing a nuclear-capable underwater attack drone. South Korea's President Yoon Suk-yul on Wednesday reiterated the importance of security collaboration with the U.S. and Japan to restore the three-axis system, which refers to the South's response plan to intercept and destroy the North's nuclear weapons and missiles and destroy key facilities such as its command. Eric, thank you for the facts. We've got an establishment-critical narrative provided by KCNA Watch. The U.S. and its warmongering allies continue to provoke North Korea by performing acts of intimidation and simulating war on a grand scale. Western media lies and calls these military operations defensive, but in reality, the U.S. and its puppet states are loading the Korean peninsula with weapons of war and rehearsing their attack on the North. The North does not want war, but this provocation cannot persist. Voice of American News gives us a pro-establishment narrative. North Korea is unleashing its largest propaganda campaign in years, as it threatens the U.S. and its allies. The country's state media is doing all it can to recruit young men to join its military, as it works to bolster its nuclear arsenal. Wartime rhetoric is emanating from the North and the U.S. must focus on deterring an attack. And the Nerds of Metaculous have an opinion. They say there's a 15% chance that North Korea and South Korea will be recognized as a unified, sovereign state by 2045. A U.K. military record on civilians killed in Iraq and Syria is questioned. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian and the actions on armed violence. New questions have emerged regarding an admission made by the UK in May 2018 that its military had killed one civilian in eastern Syria two months earlier, the only civilian casualty they have acknowledged. Then Defense Secretary Gavin Williamson told Parliament that the strike was not logged in records of civilian casualties kept by its allies in the international coalition. A investigation by the Guardian newspaper identified six strikes in the Iraqi city of Mosul that killed civilians and appear to have been carried out by British forces, suggesting discrepancies in the government's account and consequently raising concerns about how the UK records civilian casualties. The report alleges that the only civilian casualty recognized by Britain in the course of an eight-year aerial bombing campaign against the Islamic State came in a strike that did not officially harm anyone, and the civilian in question doesn't seem to officially exist. According to a written statement released to the House of Commons at the start of May 2018, a Hellfire missile strike aimed at three militants during which a civilian motorbike crossed into the strike area at the last moment, resulted in the unintentional death of one civilian. Months after Secretary Williamson's statement, U.S.-led coalition investigators concluded that no coalition strikes were conducted in the geographical area that corresponded to the report of civilian casualties. Besides this disputed claim, the U.K. has maintained that its military has conducted a perfect war against IS in Iraq and Syria. The coalition overall has accepted its strikes have killed at least 1,437 civilians, the majority of them in American strikes. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. We're going to look at the spins, the first one being the establishment critical narrative coming from Arab News. British bombing in Iraq and Syria in the fight against IS resulted in more than 4,000 munitions in the two countries. 
it seems incredibly unlikely that not a single civilian was killed during said campaign. Besides the deaths that were uncovered in the Guardian's investigation, there were almost certainly more victims for whom the UK's military failed to properly account. Justice and accountability for their deaths must be pursued. And the national news has provided us with a pro-establishment narrative. This investigation reinforces that the UK's armed forces must comply with the highest possible operational standards. However, regardless of debate over the particulars, one must keep in mind that the fight against IS was absolutely necessary and that UK forces did everything in their power to reduce civilian casualties. Going forward, the UK is always trying to improve its tactics. Turning our attention to India, Twitter is accused of censoring Modi's critics. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Wired, BBC News, The Register, and Al Mayadeen. Twitter has been accused of cooperating in censorship with India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government, as it agreed to block more than 120 accounts on the behest of the state in the aftermath of the search for a fugitive Sikh separatist leader. This comes after 27 million people across Punjab were left without mobile internet access between March 18th through the 21st as part of a government hunt for Amritpal Singh Sandhu, allegedly to hinder the spread of misinformation at the time. The region of Punjab and the Sikh community have seen a recent rise in tension with the Indian state, with the likes of Singh demanding the creation of an independent state of Khalistan or a separate Sikh homeland. Similar sentiments in the 1980s led to a violent insurgency, in which thousands were killed. Accounts that were banned in the third-largest market for Twitter include the Canadian politician Jagmeet Singh, the Canadian poet Rupi Kaur, several journalists, and an Indian member of parliament, which claims that the Modi government has taken draconian measures and cracked down on dissent coming from Sikh or other minority communities. On Tuesday, it was reported that Twitter had geo-blocked the official government account of Pakistan for anyone within India, a measure that's also believed to have occurred in July and October of 2022. The orders can be made by the Modi government under the 2000 IT Act. In response to accusations of the social media app enforcing censorship, Twitter owner Elon Musk, who has continuously advocated for free speech, tweeted he can't deal with every aspect of the platform immediately while simultaneously running Tesla and SpaceX. All right, Eric, we've got a narrative A on this story, and it's provided by TechDirt. While Musk argues that he supports free speech, he doesn't mean all free speech. In reality, his support is conditioned on a country's law, meaning that when an oppressive, censorial government such as Modi's can legally suppress freedom of expression, Musk and Twitter are happy to comply. Musk's desire for free speech only extends to his ability to get away with saying what he wants rather than standing up to authoritarian regimes. Narrative B comes from Times Now News. It's ironic that Western mainstream media is claiming that Musk's Twitter has colluded with Modi's government to silence the opposition just weeks after it was exposed that some 40,000 accounts belonging to real people, primarily Americans, who had never been to India and who were not Hindu, were targeted in 2021 by a U.S.-funded disinformation lab for allegedly supporting Hindu nationalism. It seems the media only cries censorship when trying to find fault with a non-Western country. Johnson & Johnson files for bankruptcy to pursue an $8.9 billion talc settlement. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, MarketWatch, Cypress Mail, Guardian, and New York Times. Johnson & Johnson, or J&J, has agreed to pay $8.9 billion, far larger than its original offer of $2 billion, to settle tens of thousands of lawsuits alleging that talc, in its famous baby powder product, caused cancer. J&J had its subsidiary, LTL Management, file for bankruptcy to cover the settlement for a second time Tuesday and has commitments from 60,000 claimants to support the move. Previously, an appeals court said in January that LTL couldn't file for bankruptcy because it wasn't in financial distress. Under the new proposal, the settlement will be placed in a bankruptcy trust for plaintiffs diagnosed with cancer before April 1st to cover medical bills for the next 25 years. In its bankruptcy court filing, LTL said it would present a judge with a reorganization plan by May 14th. This came after J&J's board approved the vastly larger settlement over the weekend. In order for the deal to move forward, the new LTL bankruptcy must be approved by a court and the company must secure enough support from the plaintiffs who claim that the talc used in J&J's baby powder contains asbestos, a known carcinogenic. Meanwhile, J&J says this agreement isn't an admission of guilt and maintains that its baby powder doesn't cause cancer. Those were the facts, and the first spin is an establishment-critical narrative coming from the Journal of Health and Biomedical Law. Big Pharma continues to get away with murder. While the FDA allows companies to conduct their own clinical trials free from proper oversight, when they inevitably create toxic products, the companies get slapped with an easy-to-pay fine, while no executives go to jail or even pay individual penalties. Unless there's a crackdown, this cycle will continue. And that's followed up with a pro-establishment narrative provided by JohnsonandJohnson.com. J&J, which isn't at fault, continues to be committed to producing the safest and most effective products. It only agreed to the settlement to avoid wasting time and money in a drawn-out court battle that would have resulted in nothing for the plaintiffs. Now J&J can return to the business of protecting people's health. In our next story, the Vatican accuses China of breaking a bilateral pact on appointing bishops. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Vatican News, Asia News, Reuters, Barron's, and Fox News. The Vatican on Tuesday claimed that Chinese authorities have unilaterally appointed a new bishop to Shanghai, the largest Roman Catholic diocese in China, apparently violating their bilateral secret deal on the appointment of bishops. The Holy See's press office director, Matteo Bruni, reported that the Roman Catholic Church learned from the media that Bishop Shen Bin was transferred from Hyman to Shanghai. Asia News revealed on Monday that Shen Bin was to be installed the next day after the Council of Chinese Bishops, which is not recognized by the Holy See, named its head the new bishop of Shanghai without papal approval. The bishopric of Shanghai has been vacant since the death of the late bishop Jin Lukshan in April of 2013. The Holy See stated that the auxiliary bishop Ma Dukin, who has been under house arrest since 2012 for publicly rejecting the communist-led Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association, should administer the diocese. This latest crisis between the Holy See and Beijing comes a few months after both sides agreed on renewing for two years the 2018 deal aimed at reuniting the estimated 12 million Chinese Catholics split between official and underground churches. 
Eric, thank you for the facts in that story. We've got an anti-China narrative brought to us by The Nation. Though Pope Francis is well aware of human rights abuses committed by Beijing that could amount to even crimes against humanity, he has chosen to turn a blind eye based on wishful thinking that the Vatican-China deal would provide the Holy See better access to Catholics in China. It has become crystal clear that Beijing simply does not follow this agreement, and the Vatican must change course and make this deal public and ensure that China respects freedom of religion. The pro-China narrative comes from where Peter is. Though it's tempting to reduce decades of a sensitive relationship between China and the Vatican to a simple conflict between good and evil to either attack Pope Francis or Beijing, one can only negatively affect the future and religious liberty of Catholics in China by doing so. The Holy See knows that the 2018 deal is not perfect and could indeed prove ineffective if not accompanied by a deep commitment by both sides. However, this agreement, especially the PRC's involvement, is nevertheless a necessary step to improve the situation of Chinese Catholics. And we're going to wrap this story up with a nerd narrative that says there's a 50% chance that China will score at least 5.60 on the Human Freedom Index in 2013. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. And in our final story today, an Australian mayor readies a defamation suit over ChatGPT. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Mint, Reason.com, and The Straits Times. Mayor of Hepburnshire, Australia, Brian Hood, said he may sue OpenAI owner of the artificial intelligence AI ChatBT amid reports that the chatbot has made false claims that he served time in prison for bribery. ChatGPT has reportedly said that Hood went to prison in connection with a foreign bribery scandal involving a subsidiary of the Reserve Bank of Australia, note printing Australia in the early 2000s. His lawyer said he did work there, but that he was the one who notified authorities of the scheme. Hood's lawyers said they also sent OpenAI a letter of concern on March 21st, which gave the company 28 days to fix any errors about their client or face a possible defamation lawsuit. According to the legal team, the San Francisco-based company hasn't yet responded to their letter. If the lawsuit goes forward, it would likely be the first time a person has sued OpenAI for claims made about the automated language product. One of Hood's lawyers, James Naughton, agreed that, quote, he's an elected official, his reputation is central to his role, adding that, it makes a difference to him if people in his community are accessing this material. Hood is unaware of the exact number of users who access the false information, a determinant in the payout size. But Naughton said the nature of the lie was serious enough that he may claim more than 200,000 Australian dollars or 134,000 US dollars. Thank you, Adam. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from the Wall Street Journal. While the slandering of Hood's reputation is troublesome, it will be very difficult to prove an AI algorithm is at fault for disseminating defamatory information. To defame someone, legally speaking, the perpetrator must have knowingly disseminated the falsities with malice. But how could a computer do that? Such cases involving public figures will lead to ever-growing debate on the issue of AI and its role in public discourse. But to sue a robot isn't a winnable course of action. And Quizmodo is going to follow that up with a narrative B. The case against OpenAI has nothing to do with the algorithm. 
and everything to do with the company's delayed response to Hood's request. Once Hood proved the information to be false, OpenAI should have scrapped it off the platform immediately. But according to the lawyers, it hasn't done that and therefore has opened itself to a legitimate allegation of defamation. And lastly, we have a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance that OpenAI will announce GBT5 by April 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, April 6th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.